From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. President Biden is pushing for a two-state solution in response to the Israel-Hamas war. We'll tell you more about that. And in fighting the opioid crisis, one activist is asking for policies that treat people addicted to drugs with dignity and respect. It doesn't matter how hard I work. At the end of the day, I look in the mirror and like I can just be a piece of junkie because that's what I've heard since the day like I was found to use drugs. Plus, a lawmaker says a shelved Looney Tunes movie is no laughing matter. It's Sunday, November 19th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Qatar's prime minister is suggesting that a deal is close to free the more than 200 hostages held by Hamas militants, saying today he's confident a deal will be reached soon and that there are very minor issues to work out. His remarks today follow a report from the Washington Post saying some hostages could be released within the next several days in exchange for a five-day ceasefire. With thousands rallying this weekend in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, demanding they be released. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that officials in Israel and Washington are downplaying reports that an agreement has been made. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, there was no deal on the table and I can't expand beyond that, adding that every effort's being made to return as many hostages as possible. Officials in Washington conveyed the same message. The comments came as a huge crowd of marchers arrived in Jerusalem, demanding that the government do more to get hostages released. Thousands rallied Saturday night outside Israeli military headquarters in Tel Aviv. Netanyahu told reporters he would see that the full war cabinet meets with representatives of the families in the coming days. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Democrats running for California's U.S. Senate seat facing calls from protesters who support a ceasefire in Gaza. From member station KQED, Guy Maserati reports that the protests came during a party convention in Sacramento. Dozens of protesters calling for an end to the war in Gaza interrupted speeches from Congress members Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. Moments later, those chants turned into cheers for Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who supports a ceasefire. The state party canceled the evening portion of the convention because of the protests. The Senate hopefuls are running for the seat previously held by the late Dianne Feinstein. The Democrats will appear alongside Republicans in California's open primary on March 5th. For NPR News, I'm Guy Marzorati in Sacramento. The Securities and Exchange Commission implemented new rules over the summer requiring companies to report cyber attacks within four days of determining the severity. But now cyber criminals are trying to take advantage of the rules in an unexpected way, as NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports. A criminal ransomware group that goes by Alfie or Black Cat recently revealed that they had hacked into Meridian Link, a financial services company that originates loans. But when the hackers demanded a ransom in exchange for its files back, the company didn't respond. As a result, the hackers decided to file a formal complaint with the SEC, alleging that Meridian Link failed to report what they argued was a material incident within four days of learning about it. While criminals making use of regulatory requirements might seem ironic, it reveals the extent to which ransomware as an industry has been professionalized. It also demonstrates how tools meant to improve corporate security might be abused. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Healthcare advocates are criticizing a state report that was ordered by Governor Healy in response to the closing of Lemonster Hospital's maternity ward. The advocates say the report does not provide a clear strategy to stop the closure of additional facilities. In September, UMass Memorial Medical Center closed its birthing center in Lemonster, despite the state calling the center an essential service. The State Department of Public Health said it did not have the authority to prevent the closure. The head of a new gun violence prevention unit in Massachusetts says a priority will be holding the firearms industry accountable. Aldenborn reports. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell created the unit and has appointed attorney Christine Doctor to lead it. She says she plans to use civil and criminal litigation to prevent gun violence, including going after manufacturers. That's addressing misleading marketing practices, uh, product defects, as well as prosecuting illegal trafficking that enable bad actors in the gun industry. Doctor grew up in Berkshire County and now lives in Hampshire County. She says she and her colleagues are looking forward to conversations with responsible gun owners, law enforcement, survivors, and advocacy organizations. Doctor says they will inform the unit's work. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Investigators in New Hampshire are trying to determine the motive for the shooting of the state at the state's psychiatric hospital in Concord on Friday. Police say 33-year-old John Midori killed a security guard. Midori was shot and killed by a state trooper. Court records show that Midori was ordered to be transported from the hospital for hearings on assault charges in 2016 and 2017. The state is not confirming whether he was a patient. Nova Scotia's 52nd annual gift to Boston is scheduled to arrive on Tuesday. The 45-foot-tall white spruce tree from the Canadian province will be escorted by police to Boston Common. The tree lighting ceremony is set for the end of the month. It is 37 degrees in Boston with sunshine today. Highs in the low 50s. Some isolated showers this afternoon and evening. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Well, it took them a while, but Congress finally gave us a spending bill. Sort of. It's a stopgap bill, so there's still more to work out. And President Biden is making waves with some statements he made about the war in Gaza, and it might cost him some support. We're joined now by NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. Okay, okay, so let's start with this uh, two-tiered stopgap spending bill. You know, it's kind of a, a weird one for Congress because it funds four federal agencies until January 19, 2024, and then the rest of the agencies for a couple of weeks more. The idea is that this will give Congress more time to agree on long-term spending bills. Um, but there's some surprise that the House was able to get this passed. Like, how did Republican Speaker Mike Johnson get it done? He got it done with exactly the same formula that got Kevin McCarthy fired. He passed it with Democratic votes. 
But Mike Johnson is getting a little bit more of a honeymoon from the MAGA caucus in the House than Kevin McCarthy did. He simply has fewer people who hate him, uh, less bad blood with other Republicans. Uh, One, because he's a relatively blank slate. He's never even chaired a committee, so he hasn't had a lot of time to, to make enemies. But also because on social issues, his... Far-right bona fides are pretty impeccable. He's a culture warrior. He's been at the forefront of legal battles to stop access to abortion, to stop same-sex marriage. He's not just against same-sex marriage. He's also against homosexuality itself. And he was a leader in the legal fight to overturn the 2020 election. Now, we don't know how those positions are going to affect how he leads as speaker over time, but it has given him a lot of credibility in the House with the same Republicans who are very suspicious of anything that funds the government without very deep spending cuts and other policy changes they want, and they don't want to make those make any compromises with Democrats. Okay, so it, it sounds like they're giving Speaker Johnson some room to run for, for now, but all is not well among House Republicans, right? Like our own congressional reporter, uh, uh, Claudia Grisales, she witnessed like a fight go down, right? A physical altercation. That's right. Claudia witnessed... Uh, Representative Tim Burchett, Republican of Tennessee, accused former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of shoving him. She was right there when it happened. Uh, Burchett says McCarthy elbowed him in the ribs. McCarthy denies this, but the scuffle or whatever you want to call it and the chase that ensued was witnessed by reporters. So Republicans can't get along. They can't decide how they want to govern. And it has gotten so bad that it's come to blows. Mm. Now, President Biden's meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping grabbed a lot of headlines this past week, and that's understandable. But the president made a very strong statement on another international issue, the Middle East, on Wednesday. Here's what he said. I made it clear to the Israelis that um, to Bibi and to his war cabinet that I think the only ultimate answer here is a two-state solution that's real. We got to get to the point where there is an ability to be able to even talk without worrying about whether or not we're just dealing with, uh, they're dealing with Hamas that's going to engage in the same activities they did over the past, uh, on, on the 7th. But that runs counter to everything Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wants, right? Right. Well, he and his government are against a two-state solution. Uh, They've done everything they can to make it impossible to have a two-state solution, including allowing more and more settlers into the West Bank. But President Biden has been for a two-state solution for a very long time. He went on to say that he's working with other Arab countries on a plan for Gaza and the West Bank uh, post-Hamas that includes a Palestinian state. Uh, It's not clear. There is a growing consensus that 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 post-Hamas future, if it happens, will probably not include Netanyahu as the leader of Israel. Um, But that's what the president wants. And now he's talking more and more about it in public. And and President Biden doubled down on that yesterday with an op-ed in The Washington Post, right? That's right. He wrote a very long op-ed where he said the U.S. stood in support of Israel, but that the Palestinian people deserve a state of their own. And he went on to lay out some basic principles for that state. He said Gaza must never again be used as a platform for terrorism, but there must be no forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, no reoccupation, no siege or blockade, no reduction in territory. And he said uh, that that's the solution that he wants. How that happens, whether it happens, how long it takes is still very, very unclear.
That's NPR National Political Correspondent Mara Liason. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. And we're going to hear more now about the Biden administration's response to the war between Israel and Hamas. The president has had to navigate complex political realities, and he's had to be very diplomatic in his approach to the issue. In an op-ed published yesterday in The Washington Post, he outlined his efforts for peace in the region. But are those efforts resonating domestically? Jewish Jewish voters have long been an important Democratic voting bloc, but the war is highlighting fault lines in the Democratic Party over Israel policy. NPR's Sarah McCammon talked with Jewish voters about the crisis and has this report. Yaffa Rubenstein has long voted for Democrats, and she's a strong supporter of President Biden and his handling of Israel's war against Hamas. But I'm upset and I'm, I'm sad. Rubenstein is 75. She grew up in Israel but has lived in the U.S. for more than four decades. In the past, Rubenstein says she's helped Syrian refugees and pushed back against former President Trump's so-called Muslim ban. Now she feels betrayed by what she describes as anti-Israel sentiment from some left-wing Democrats. We met the refugees. I said that if Trump tried to force one of them out, I will protect them in my own home. Where are they now? Where are the progressive Democrats? Rubenstein came from her home in suburban Maryland to a pro-Israel march in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday. So did Leib Kaminsky of Falls Church, Virginia. He says he appreciates Biden's support for Israel, but as a gay Jewish man, he's felt isolated by the anti-Semitic rhetoric he's heard from some progressives. It's extremely difficult being in the LGBTQ community because they have turned their backs on Jews. You try to be as open-minded as possible, but when people are coming at you and, you know, saying that Hamas is right and doing these things and they support the LGBT community and you're like, well, these people don't know what's going on. A strong majority of Jewish Americans have consistently voted for Democrats. Even so, Sam Markstein with the Republican Jewish Coalition says he thinks this could be a moment to win over some Jewish voters to the GOP. He notes that his organization hosted the most recent Republican primary debate. The Democratic Party of today has had a very loud and growing and ascendant anti-Israel voice and wing, and they've been coddled and enabled by leadership for years. And so that, I think, has led to a point where you will see Jewish voters who may have never voted Republican before in their lives seriously considering voting Republican for the first time ever in 2024. But Haley Soifer with the Jewish Democratic Council of America says there's no indication of a major shift. She points to a new poll released Thursday by the Jewish Electorate Institute in which 74 percent of Jewish voters said they approve of Biden's handling of the war. There is a misconception that is out there regarding Jewish voters that somehow, because Republicans have tried to politicize this, that Jewish voters may be leaving the Democratic Party or may be leaving their support of President Biden amid this crisis. And that is patently false. While Jewish voters make up only a small percentage of the electorate, their turnout numbers are consistently well above average, Soifer says, and many live in battleground states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Ohio. 
The JEI poll also found a generational divide among Jewish voters that somewhat echoes the general population. More than 80% of Jewish voters over age 36 approved of Biden's Israel policy, but just over half of younger Jewish voters said they did. Jay Saper is with Jewish Voice for Peace, which describes itself as anti-Zionist. If he is hoping to inspire young people to turn out to the polls, he cannot further support the Israeli military at this time. We, who are in the streets, who are raising our voices, will have to be withholding our votes from the president if he continues to not call for a ceasefire. Biden is also facing pressure from Muslim and Arab leaders, who've also warned they will withhold support from candidates who back Israel's continued war against Hamas, begun in response to the terrorist attacks last month that left at least 1,200 Israelis dead. Since then, more than 11,000 people have died in Gaza, according to Palestinian officials. At the Israel March, Yaffa Rubinstein says she holds out hope for a two-state solution that will provide a home for both Israelis and Palestinians. In the meantime, she hopes supporters of Palestinians will not abandon Biden. Because if they don't vote for, uh, for Biden, who's going to win? Trump. And then, do you know what that Trump said about that will do to them? And you be sure that when he said that he will do it, he will do it. Trump remains the overwhelming frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. He said if he's elected again, he will deport those he sees as sympathizing with Hamas. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the latest on melting glaciers in the American West. It's 39 degrees in Boston with sunshine today, highs in the low 50s, some isolated showers. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs and Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. 
Qatar's prime minister is suggesting that a deal is closed to free the more than 200 hostages held by Hamas militants, saying today he's confident a deal will be reached soon. His remarks follow a report from the Washington Post saying some hostages could be released within the next several days in exchange for a five-day ceasefire. The U.S. and Israel downplayed the report. Colorado Springs is marking the first anniversary of the mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub. The attack at Club Q a year ago today left five people dead and 17 others wounded. And Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is in Hawaii. He's to meet today with senior U.S. military leaders. He stopped in Hawaii after attending last week's APEC summit in San Francisco. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The U.S. has lifted its sanctions on a Chinese police institute it once alleged was part of human rights abuses. In exchange, China is going to work more closely with the U.S. to stop the movement of fentanyl and and related chemicals into the U.S. But as NPR's Emily Fang reports, there's concern lifting those sanctions could enable more abuses. When Chinese leader Xi Jinping and President Biden met in San Francisco on Wednesday, one of the topics was a police institute in China's Xinjiang. That's the region where Beijing's built up an advanced security apparatus in large part to monitor and detain the ethnic Uyghur population there. And the police institute in question researches something called population genetics. Yves Moreau, an engineering professor at KU Leuven, a university in Belgium, explains. Population genetics is trying to understand how populations vary across the world. I mean, obviously, we can just look at people's faces across the world and we see, well, there are differences. And so trying to understand the link between the change, the subtle changes in genetics. That's population genetics. And China's Institute of Forensic Science, as it's called, which studies this, is run by the Ministry of Public Security, China's equivalent of the FBI. It is beefing up its genetic sequencing capabilities, trying to differentiate ethnic groups within China from their DNA found at crime scenes. Moreau found documentation showing this. This was very surprising. The extent of purchases, the procurement efforts were very, very substantial. Procurement of about 40 high-end genetic sequencing machines. That's more than some countries have. The Institute of Forensic Science also sent their top scientist abroad, a researcher named Li Caixia. And Li ended up at Yale University. A prominent American geneticist at Yale named Kenneth Kidd agreed to let her work for a year in his lab in 2014. I mean, did you have any concerns at the outset? Not at the outset. This is NPR's Elsa Chang interviewing Kidd on this collaboration in 2019. Because by that point, his collaboration with Li Caixiao was under scrutiny. The Forensics Institute had filed patents saying they could tell Uyghurs and other ethnic groups apart using their DNA. 
The U.S. imposed sanctions on the Forensics Institute in 2020, in large part to stop it from buying U.S. equipment. U.S. officials said they feared the Institute's research was used to disproportionately surveil and target ethnic Uyghurs and other groups in China. Sociology professor Mark Munsterjelm at Canada's University of Windsor was among the researchers who first discovered the Institute's patents online. It's utilizing and in a way resurrecting what were once discredited concepts of race, and particularly because it's being targeted against a marginalized group under conditions of incredible repression. Now that sanctions are gone, he fears the Institute could resume the ethnic profiling research. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Melting glaciers have become one of the most iconic images of climate change, usually in some far-flung place. But what about glaciers of the American West? Turns out about a quarter of them have been lost since the mid-20th century. Andrew Fountain has spent his career studying glaciers as a geology professor at Portland State University in Oregon. His work was recently profiled by the Montana Free Press. Professor Fountain joins us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Isha. Thank you for having me. You know, I think there's a lot that we can learn about glaciers. There's a lot I don't know. What is the scientific definition? A glacier is perennial snow or ice that moves. And when I say perennial, uh, what I mean is it's been around for a long time and it's moving down the mountainside. How did you begin this project of basically counting the glaciers of the western U.S. and you were comparing them to some old data that you had? Right. You know, years ago, we put together a database of all the glaciers that we found on the old USGS maps. And those are the maps that date to the mid-20th century. And using, uh, what, satellite imagery and aerial imagery, We've gone back and looked at all those glaciers and digitized the outlines and then compared what we found today to what was on the maps, what, 50 years ago. Mm. And what did you see? Did you see a lot of spaces where there had been a glacier and there were now no more glaciers? Yeah, we were pretty surprised. You know, about a quarter of the glaciers are gone. And what I mean by gone is... Yeah, some of them disappeared entirely. Others just became little snow patches. And then there's others that just shrank below our threshold area, which is like 0.01 square kilometers, which is basically a football field next to a football field. And if the feature is smaller than that, we just don't count it because we'd be spending all, all our time on these really dinky pieces of ice and not getting the big picture. Is all of that due to climate change? Yeah, pretty much. Glaciers respond to how much snow they get in the winter and how much melting occurs in the summer. And even though the amount of precipitation over the long period of time has pretty much stayed the same, we're getting a little bit less snow, a little bit more rain in a lot of places. And rain doesn't help the glacier. And then, of course, you have a warming summer air temperatures, which causes more melting. And these glaciers are shrinking. So it's just a matter of long-term climate warming. So what is the impact of these disappearing glaciers across the West? Is this a big deal? Well, it's huge for high alpine water resources. 
and the ecosystems that depend on these glaciers that are melting. In the far west here in Oregon, on the north side of Mount Hood, the apple and pear orchards rely on late summer glacial melt for their water supply. And then up in the Cascade Mountains, uh, north of Seattle, Seattle City Light has a large reservoir that gets a lot of late summer glacial melt, which is a significant contribution to its water balance. So there are some direct human effects, and then there's this kind of broad ecological effect as well. If current trends continue, will these glaciers all disappear? I think most of them are going to go, yeah. Uh, We did a study on the Olympic Peninsula, which is west of Seattle, right up against the ocean. And our modeling there suggests that those glaciers are going to disappear by about 2070 if we continue warming as as we're continuing now. And all the other glaciers are going to pretty much follow suit after that. And we'll probably be left with just a few glaciers on the highest peaks of the west. It's just not looking good. Andrew Fountain, Professor Emeritus of Portland State University. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your work. Well, thanks for um, your questions and your interest. Today, we're going to meet one of the leading voices trying to change the way we think about America's deadly overdose crisis, which is killing record numbers of people every year. Louise Vincent runs what she calls a drug users union. Her idea, still controversial, is that more people who use drugs will survive if we treat them with dignity and care. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. When Louise Vincent spoke last month at a drug policy conference in Phoenix, Arizona, people reacted like she's a rock star. And then we have Louise Vincent. Vincent herself has used heroin and fentanyl since she was 13 and still does openly. I was never really able to stay sober from the drugs. She's a small woman, rail thin. At 47, her face is weathered by what she describes as a hard, often lonely life. I felt like I didn't, like, belong anywhere. It's devastating. And it doesn't matter how hard I work or what I do. At the end of the day, I look in the mirror and, like, I can just be a piece of junkie because that's what I've heard since the day, like, I was found to use drugs. The stigma's grown worse, Vincent says, in the age of fentanyl and other toxic street drugs. Vincent herself used xylazine, a horse tranquilizer poisonous to humans, by accident a few years ago before public health warnings were issued. A dealer mixed the chemical into her fentanyl, leaving her with devastating wounds that still won't heal. It has eaten the skin off my entire arm. I was like, I can't even talk about it without crying. This part is hard for many Americans to understand. If drug use is so harmful, why don't smart, thoughtful people like Louise Vincent simply stop? Research shows addiction doesn't work like that. It's complex, hard to beat, tangled up in everything from mental illness and trauma to poverty and homelessness. Opioid addiction is especially difficult to escape, and experts agree the U.S. has mostly failed to create the kind of healthcare system needed to help people recover. Vincent's argument, laid out at conferences and public appearances, is that we need to start over reinventing addiction care by treating drug users like herself with dignity, with an approach known as harm reduction. Let me just say, I didn't start doing harm reduction because I wanted to save the world. I wanted to save myself. I needed a family. I did. I didn't want to be rejected anymore. 
Vincent was one of the first activists in the U.S. to help people use drugs more safely, giving them services and care even if they're not ready or able to stop. She did it by creating an actual place. This is the Urban Survivors Union in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina, where she lives. Drug users can come here and feel welcome. No more hiding. When we came here, it was a total mess, and we have worked really hard to turn it into a cozy, warm place. Drug users can get a meal, a cup of coffee, guidance towards social service programs and treatment. They can also test their drugs for fentanyl and xylazine. We're creating a wound room for xylazine wounds, big wounds that people are coming in with. Vincent compares this grassroots effort, humanizing and bringing drug users into the open, to the fight for LGBTQ acceptance during the 1990s. She says the stigma and death surrounding addiction now mirror the early years of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. We've had an entire community swept away. I can't even think of all the people that I know that have died. I mean, so many people are dead. My, own, my daughter died. Our mentors are dead. I can barely stand to be, be here sometimes because of all the trauma and all the people that we've lost. Vincent's become a national voice pushing for harm reduction to be scaled up fast. But her belief that the U.S. can save a lot of lives by helping people without first demanding abstinence and sobriety is still controversial. I ask about criticism of her approach and Vincent flashes anger. We've had the real push on abstinence for how many years now? And where have we gotten? Many drug policy experts in government and academia have come to share Vincent's belief that America's current approach to addiction has failed. The numbers are catastrophic. After decades of the drug war and an emphasis on abstinence-centered recovery, deaths keep rising. More than 112,000 fatal overdoses in the U.S. every year. Vincent's alternatives are pretty simple, and they're endorsed now by the American Medical Association and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Give drug users basic health care and access to clean needles that reduce disease. Make medical treatments for opioid addiction, like methadone and buprenorphine, far more accessible. When drug use threatens to disrupt neighborhoods, respond with affordable housing and counseling, not more arrests. There's some answers, and there's some things that work that we just downright refuse to, to implement. But many politicians are moving in the opposite direction. Responding to homeless camps and open-air drug markets, Democrats and Republicans have backed tougher drug laws for fentanyl like those passed during the crack cocaine epidemic. Vincent fears this backlash will force more people like herself underground, making them more vulnerable to overdose. They are now screaming, arrest, 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 arrest. Nobody is going to talk about their drug use that's not already out. You're not going to go admit to these crimes. They're crimes. Vincent says she'll keep fighting for the idea that drug users deserve places like this, where they can go to feel welcome and safe and cared for. I think it's everything. We built this and we did it underground when it was illegal, and I'll do it illegally again. I believe that people who use drugs deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. But with fentanyl deaths still rising and many politicians promising a tougher response, Vincent acknowledges her vision of drug users gaining acceptance still feels a long way off. Brian Mann, NPR News. You're 
listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Black leaders in Oklahoma want to keep the state's historic freedmen towns alive. They were established after the Civil War on Indian land, but are now experiencing economic hardship. Elizabeth Caldwell from member station KWGS reports there's no clear path to how they could survive. <laughs> in eastern Oklahoma at the Honey Springs Visitors Center, director Adam Lynn is telling a tour group about the largest Civil War battle that took place here in Indian Country. Most importantly, this is thought to be one of the most culturally, if not the most culturally diverse conflict to take place in the entire Civil War. That's a large statement since there were over 10,000 battle skirmishes and conflicts that took place. The Union's first black soldiers fought at Honey Springs in the summer of 1863 alongside members of the Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Nations. Lynn says the black soldiers deserve a lot of credit. They played a large role in Union victory here. They were the very first African-American regiment to see combat in the entire Civil War as well. After the Union won the war, the tribes, in negotiation with the federal government, granted their former slaves land. These freedmen helped to create at least 50 all-black towns in Oklahoma. Simone Davis is the former town manager of Oklahoma's oldest historically black town, Tallahassee. She says freedmen's towns are important not only for historical reasons, but because they set examples for ownership. Black towns are governed by a municipal boundary line or trustees and city councils who are of the community, same people. Black people, Black town, Black mayor, Black council. And so it's really important for us to see ourselves in these roles, knowing that we are guiding our own future. And that's what Black towns represent. There are about 13 historic all-Black towns in Oklahoma still operating today, but most are rural with tiny populations. Not all residents are Black, and people are leaving for better opportunities. Tallahassee doesn't even have a place to shop for food. Lori Thompson, who assists Tallahassee's mayor, says she'd like to see a small store in the community. But of course, we, you know, we would love to have big things and, you know, have a, a real grocery store and that type of stuff. That would be great, too. But we've got to start small. At least the town has a community center and hopes its history could attract visitors. About 30 miles away is another all-black town called Rentiesville. It's home to the Oklahoma Blues Hall of Fame. Volunteer Shelley Zykus says an annual blues festival is largely funded by grants and donations. It's not like a real money maker. You know, it's more for the heart of the music. And the musicians just, they have to play. A lot of people come just for the festival. The mayor of Rentiesville, Mildred Burkhalter, says her town of 135 people has hopes for an RV park and a gift shop to offer a place for tourists to stay year-round. We have big ideas, but the main thing is we have to have the resources to put those things in place. Where to find those resources is not clear. But Burkhalter says with growing restrictions on how black history is taught in school, preserving these towns matters. The history, it can't be told the way you want to tell it. So the only way you're going to know about it is that you're going to have to pay visits, you're going to have to come into these little towns and see what it's all about. Burkhalter says for however long her town is on the map, that history will remain alive. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Rentiesville, Oklahoma.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Tomorrow morning, Governor Maura Healey and State Attorney General Andrea Campbell will outline a plan to address and prevent acts of hate and hate crimes in Massachusetts. The Justice Department reports the state had 477 hate crimes last year. An Anti-Defamation League report found anti-Semitic attacks and white supremacist propaganda fueled a 30 percent increase in hate crimes between 2021 and 2022. In New Hampshire, investigators are trying to determine what led to the shooting at the state psychiatric hospital in Concord on Friday. Police say 33-year-old John Midori killed a security guard. Midori was shot and killed by a state trooper. Court records show that in 2016 and 2017, Midori was ordered to be transported from the hospital for hearings on assault charges, but the state is not confirming whether he was a patient. It's 39 degrees in Boston, highs today in the low 50s, a chance of some showers. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series of Boston, presenting pianist Jeremy Denk on December 8th at NEC's Jordan Hall. Tickets and more information at celebrityseries.org. And BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu slash met. When actor and singer Billy Porter released his first album in 1997, he had a lot to say and hide. Everybody told me that my queerness would be my liability, and it was for decades. And now it's actually my superpower. Billy Porter uninhibited in his new album, Black Mona Lisa, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology, like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good to talk to you, Aisha. Yeah, and we got to do that really fun thing last week, so we all got to know you so much better. I want to say thank you again for that. That was fun. Thank you. So, Will, I know we've been running a challenge for two weeks now. Remind us of what that is. Yes, I said name a geographical place, either domestic or foreign, and describe it acrostically. And I said entries would be judged on originality, sense, naturalness of wording, elegance, and overall effect. We received over 700 submissions, many of which had multiple entries. I read every single one of them. So many good ones. I'll read a couple runners-up. Mark Halpin sent in one, a short one for Laos. Lax and Ocean, sadly, made me laugh. David Cornevo sent in Pisa. Precarious Icon Stands Aslant. That was nice. And Christy St. John did one on Alaska that said, Alaska laughed at Seward's keen acquisition. 
so many. I wish we I could read lots of them, but uh, here's the winner. My selection, the best one, came from Stephen Portnoy of Hillsboro, Oregon, and he did an acrostic on Stratford upon Avon. And his acrostic was Shakespeare transformed rhetorical art to fashion outstanding rhythmic drama using poetry, oratory, nuance, and vividly original narrative. Wow, that made me go wow. Yeah, that makes me go wow too. My goodness, that was incredible. Stephen Portnoy of Hillsboro, Oregon, welcome to the show. Thanks, and good to be here. <laughs> so, how did you come up with that? Because, my goodness, that that was very impressive. Well, there actually was a method. Uh, I was looking for place names in which the letters of the name would include the, an iconic place or object associated with it, and it was remarkable how difficult it was to find some place like that. But I finally found Shakespeare and Stratford. And from there on, it was easy. Uh, rhetorical art came quickly. Uh, drama was clearly there with a D. A couple of O's for original and outstanding, and there I had it. Wow. So, so how long have you been playing the puzzle in general? Since postcard days. Okay, I figured that's what it sounded like. It sounded like you have been at this for a while. <laughs> for a long time. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, playing other puzzles, but we were living in Oregon near our grandson, which we enjoy visiting. There's wonderful hiking in the area. All right. Well, Stephen, are you ready to play the puzzle? I feel like you are. I'm as ready as I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take it away, Will. All right, Stephen and Aisha. Today's puzzle is titled Linking Arms. I'm going to give you three words, starting with the letters A, R, and M. You give me a fourth word that can follow each of mine to complete a compound word or a familiar two-word phrase. For example, if I said air, rosin, and mail, M-A-I-L, you'd say bag, as in airbag, rosin bag, and mailbag. So here we go. Number one is Adriatic, red, Mediterranean. Sea. That is correct. Adriatic, sea, etc. Adhesive, red, masking. Tape. That's it. Abbey, as in A-B-B-E-Y, Abbey, Rocky, Maine, M-A-I-N. Road. Abbey Road, Rocky Road, Main Road is right. Audio, rule, match. What was the middle word? Rule, R-U-L-E. It's a four-letter answer. Audio, rule, match. I'm not getting it. Uh-huh. And uh, if you wanted to start a fire, you might reach for this item, starting with match. It's not stick, right? Because a matchstick, but that's not it. Yeah. What What would a matchstick be in, perhaps? Oh, a case of... What's this? A book? Matchbook? There you book? go. Matchbook. A matchbook. Matchbook. <laughs> a yeah, thank book you. An audio <laughs> book. <laughs> thank you. I really that, was two, that. that was both of us working that together. That was two heads, yeah. definitely. <laughs> Acid. Rorschach means test that's correct here's your last one airplane raffle meal ticket that's yeah. right airplane ticket raffle ticket and meal ticket good job okay. oh my goodness thank you great job steven <laughs> i feel relieved do you feel relieved i don't even have to ask you you're ready so <laughs> for playing our puzzle today you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games you can read all about it at npr.org puzzle and steven what member station do you listen to 
We're sustaining members of OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting. Oh, I love to hear that. That's Stephen Portnoy of Hillsboro, Oregon. Thank you for playing the puzzle. And thank you. It's great to have me on. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? You know, some listeners have asked for a harder challenge, so here you go. Uh, it comes from Joseph Young, who conducts the blog Puzzle Ria. Name a musical instrument plus part of that instrument, drop the last letter of the instrument, then rearrange all the remaining letters to name another musical instrument. What is it? So again, a musical instrument plus part of that instrument, drop the last letter of the instrument, and then rearrange all the remaining letters to name another musical instrument. What is it? Okay, I'm sure a lot of people are like, who was asking for harder puzzles? I'm sure that's what some people are saying right now. But when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week, because of Thanksgiving, is Wednesday, November 22nd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Roadrunner has dodged falling boulders, TNT, optical illusion traps, and all sorts of fatal devices from the Acme Corporation. But the fleet-footed Looney Tunes character seems to have been thwarted by its own studio, Warner Brothers Discovery, but maybe just temporarily. Warner Brothers shelved a finished movie, Coyote vs. Acme, and of course, it caused an uproar. Why has Warner repeatedly shelved its own movies? Matt Bellany is here to explain. He's a reporter with Puck News. Hi, Matt. Hello. Last week, the studio, Warner Brothers, backtracked and is now allowing filmmakers to shop Coyote versus Acme to other distributors. But did the studio give an explanation for why they shelved the movie in the first place? This movie was greenlit with a $70 million budget, and it was supposed to be for their streaming service. The time between it was greenlit and now there has been a regime change at warner brothers and the new regime has said that we're not going to make 70 million dollar movies for the streaming service we're going to put all of our movies in theaters so then they said okay we'll put this movie in theaters but then as they looked at it to people at the studio it didn't feel theatrical enough for a 30 million dollar marketing campaign that you have to give to make this movie a success. So they said, let's just not release it at all. We'll get some financial benefits from being able to apply the losses on our balance sheet. And that's where the creative community really responded negatively. Matt, you were on NPR more than a year ago after Warner Brothers shelled Batgirl to talk about the strategy. And, you know, Hollywood has been under a lot of pressure since then. I mean, you know, with the writers and actor strike. How are studios looking at making these financial calculations now? The economics of the studio business have gotten worse. The ad market has turned, which has put pressure on these studios to cut costs. There's been layoffs. The stock prices of many of these media companies, other than Netflix, have gone down significantly, especially Warner Brothers Discovery, which has lost about half of its value since April of 2022. 
And that is all weighing on what the ultimate decision is here. Because if this were normal times, the studio probably would have said, you know, yeah, it's 70 million. It's a little bit more than we would have spent on this movie. But you know what? We're in the business of taking risks on creators. We want our standing in the community to stay high. Well, let's just release the movie and see where it goes. These days, you don't get that luxury to make that decision. Congressman Joaquin Castro, a, a Democrat from Texas, called for a probe into the Warner Brothers strategy, comparing it to burning down a house for the insurance money. What do you make of that? I don't totally understand the criticism because obviously Warner Brothers paid for this movie. They can do with it what they want. The talent involved in the film is getting paid. So I don't see the argument there. There was also an antitrust argument that was thrown around by the congressman. I don't really see that either because this isn't really anti-competitive. It's just one studio having financial problems deciding that they don't want to release a product. But it seems wrong that these artists would put years of their lives into a movie that the studio would decide not to release for a small financial benefit. Matt Bellany is the host of the podcast, The Town, and a reporter with Puck News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For decades, doctors have known children's medical problems like asthma start due to the living conditions in their homes. We had the fungus, mushroom growing out right here. You had a mushroom growing out of your sink at one point? <laughs> like an actual mushroom? Yeah. <laughs> now some healthcare providers are prescribing lawyers to fight for improved conditions at home for their patients. Listen tomorrow on Morning Edition. Tune in with a smart speaker, your phone, or radio. In Israel, concerts and events are on hold now during the war. One band whose members span ethnicities and religions is trying to strengthen cross-cultural connections using their music. They recently performed at a Tel Aviv hotel and NPR's Daniel Estrin was there. The audience, hotel staff, a couple of NPR journalists, and mostly displaced Israelis who have been calling this hotel home. As many as a quarter of a million Israelis have been internally displaced since October 7th. Some of them have had their homes destroyed. Others were evacuated from communities near the Gaza Strip and along the border with Lebanon. Firkat Nur, which means band of light in English, is here to play for them. When it all started, it was like a big shock for all of us. Elad Kimchi plays guitar and sings in Firkat Nur. He says right after the Hamas attacks in southern Israel, he couldn't even touch his instrument. But then he and members of his orchestra started volunteering. We started to play to people, refugees from the south and from the north, trying to make them a little bit smiling. They are in hotel, but they're not for holiday. They are to be safe. That's the different. Also us, musicians and from other people, we are not in the regular life at all. The life stop. Everybody waiting for something to be solved. We are orchestra which play oriental and classical Arabic music, classical Jewish ancient music. 
And also we played Mizrahi music, which is songs that was written here in Israel in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 80s, by Jewish people from background of Middle East culture. In our orchestra, we have many members. Some of them are Muslims and Christian people. They are religious, orthodox, and also secular, and everyone is together. We are like a family. We played on uh, some of the Middle Eastern uh, traditional instruments. Kanun, the big uh, round like harp, but on the legs. It's a traditional Arabic and Turkish instrument. Next was the bass guitar. And I played on the Darbuka drum, which is the famous uh, Middle Eastern hand drum. Also I sing. These songs we play all the year. It's part of our identity. It's part of our culture. Arabic language was the language that our grandfather and grandmother used to speak in Egypt and in uh, Syria and in the Yemen and Morocco and Libya and all the countries that expelled them. This is what people like here. They feel like home. The grandma used to listen at home for famous Egyptian music and fa famous Lebanese music. It's in the blood. It's from very young age. So it's not a the enemy language. It's also language of our grandmother, grandfather. El Ad Kimchi and members of the band Firkat Nur, playing for Israelis evacuated to this hotel from the northern border. They don't yet know when they'll get to return home. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 39 degrees in Boston coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues here on 90.9 WBUR. Join us at City Space next month for a conversation with Chef Clancy Miller about her new cookbook celebrating black women and femmes in the food industry. That's Monday, December 4th. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Skylar Higley was very excited about Amazon offering health care to its Prime members. Oh, I love the Amazon Basics kidneys. We're transplanting ourselves this week to Portland, Maine, and talking to the CEO of L.L. Bean, because of course we are. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR, Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In this hour, we'll have the latest on the war between Israel and Hamas. Also, former President Donald Trump and his team are making big plans for if he retakes the White House. He is proposing what he calls the largest ever deportation operation in American history. And he's also proposed a radical reinterpretation of the 14th Amendment that would bar birthright citizenship. And why some doctors are moving away from focusing on weight as a measure of health. Plus a TV series about two men who fall in love during the McCarthy era. It's Sunday, November 19th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Palestinian officials say 31 premature babies have been evacuated from Gaza's biggest hospital that are now on their way to another hospital near the Egyptian border. The fate of newborns at Al-Shifa Hospital have captured global attention after the release of photos showing doctors trying to keep them warm amid power outages caused by Israel's invasion and blockade. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from Tel Aviv. Palestinian ambulance officials say they've managed to evacuate more than 30 premature babies from Al-Shifa hospital with help from the United Nations and the World Health Organization. The WHO says Israeli troops who now control the hospital allowed a UN team to tour the facility for just an hour. Some 2,500 evacuees had just vacated the hospital and UN representatives described what they saw as a death zone with signs of shelling, gunfire and a mass grave. Israel says its offensive on Gaza 
aims to destroy Hamas and force the return of about 240 hostages held there. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Scores of patients remain at Al-Shifa Hospital, but the chief of the WHO says that further evacuations are being planned pending guarantees of safe passage. Patterson, New Jersey has one of the country's largest Palestinian-American communities, and doctors there are standing in solidarity with doctors in Gaza, as Harrison Malkin reports. The doctors push for the safety of Palestinians and spoke out against the Israeli military attacks on hospitals in Gaza. Human Rights Watch says such Israeli attacks on medical facilities should be investigated as war crimes. Qatar's prime minister is suggesting that a deal is close to being uh, to begin freeing hostages held by Hamas militants, saying today he's confident that a deal will be reached soon. His remarks follow a report from the Washington Post saying some hostages could be released within the next several days in exchange for a five-day ceasefire. The U.S. and Israel have downplayed the report. Voters in Argentina head to the polls today in one of the most consequential and unusual presidential elections in recent history. It's come down to a race between an ultra-conservative libertarian and the government's choice. Here's NPR's Kerry Kahn. Argentines are facing one of the worst economies in years, with inflation soaring above 140 percent and poverty rising. Voters are angry and ready to punish the government, with many turning to newcomer Javier Millet, a self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist who's vowed to scrap the peso, replace it with the dollar, and radically cut the government. The current economy minister, Sergio Massa, has been warning voters of the generous state subsidies they'll lose if Millet wins, including free education, most health care and reduce public transportation. Polls show a race too close to call. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Buenos Aires. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey and State Attorney General Andrea Campbell will outline a plan tomorrow to address acts of hate in Massachusetts. The Justice Department reports there were 477 hate crimes in the state last year. An Anti-Defamation League report found anti-Semitic attacks and white supremacist propaganda fueled a 30 percent increase in hate crimes between 2021 and 2022. The head of the MBTA is providing more information about the estimated $24.5 billion the system will need. T-General Manager Phil Eng tells WCVB's On the Record the agency's needs assessment is part of the long-term plan to improve public transit. That's not looking to say we need $24.5 billion today. It's saying if we were to come in and wanted to replace everything in kind and bring it back to a state of good repair, that's the dollar value. Ng says years of underinvestment in the MBTA have led to the need for significant resources to rebuild infrastructure. A child care center that's scheduled to open in Mattapan tomorrow is designed to address a shortage of licensed daycare facilities in the area. Kitty's Corner is being started by funding from the city of Boston and the Boston Medical Center. It will serve families in Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury. Some slots will be reserved for parents who work beyond the regular nine-to-five, five-day work week. Preparations are underway on Nantucket for President Biden's annual Thanksgiving visit to the island. The Nantucket Current reports a large Air Force jet arrived last week to deliver vehicles and equipment for security. The president and his family have made a tradition for decades of visiting Nantucket on Thanksgiving. 
At the Garden last night, the Bruins beat the Canadians 5-2. to two. Tonight, the Celtics are in Memphis against the Grizzlies. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Sunny today, highs in the low 50s. A chance of some isolated showers this afternoon and evening. Overnight lows in the low 30s. A sunny Monday, tomorrow's highs in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. We start this hour with the latest from the Israel-Gaza conflict, now in its 44th day. A United Nations team toured Gaza's largest hospital and described it as a death zone after weeks when it could not replenish its critical supplies. In Israel, large demonstrations took place in both Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, Family members and friends of those taken hostage by Hamas demanded that the Israeli government do more to win their release. NPR's Peter Kenyon is following developments from Jerusalem. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Aisha. So, Peter, uh, let's start with that U.N. visit to Gaza's largest hospital. What did they find? Well, it was the U.N.'s World Health Organization, uh, and they say Israeli forces evacuated a number of people from Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza, but nearly 300 remained inside, including dozens of babies said to be in critical condition and other patients who were unable to be safely moved. In a statement, the U.N. agency said that staff and patients were, quote, terrified for their safety and health and were pleading for evacuation. Now, where these people will go isn't fully clear, possibly to southern Gaza, But hospitals there are also overwhelmed with patients and civilians seeking shelter. And what about these huge rallies urging action on hostages held by Hamas? Well, I was over by the prime minister's office here in Jerusalem yesterday when thousands of marchers arrived on the final leg of their days-long journey from Tel Aviv. Uh, The organizers of the march said Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu couldn't avoid hearing them now, and there was another large rally in Tel Aviv as well. Netanyahu did get the message. He held a news conference later in the day uh, in which he told reporters to ignore media reports of an agreement to release some women and children in exchange for a pause in fighting. But he did seem to confirm that talks are going on. Here's a bit of what he said. Now he's saying, we are prohibited from discussing the details of our demands. We want them all back, be it in one or two rounds. We want to bring whole families together. Uh, Now, he didn't give any details. He also referred to Hamas as a cruel and cynical enemy. Israel's national security advisor laid out Israel's conditions, the main ones being that any pause be short and include, quote, a massive release of hostages. And how much humanitarian aid is getting through to Gaza now? Well, the Palestinian Ministry of Health said humanitarian aid didn't cross from Egypt Saturday, but the UN Refugee Agency was allowed to import fuel enough for another couple of days and to keep communications up and running. Uh, There was a contentious vote among Netanyahu's war cabinet. Uh, It did approve a proposal to allow two truckloads of fuel to enter Gaza each day, Uh, but far-right members of the war cabinet, led by Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, 
were very critical of the proposal, saying the focus should be on intensifying the attacks on Hamas targets in order to extract more concessions from Hamas leaders. Now, this fuel proposal was backed by the U.S. and others, and the fuel's intended to keep things like the sewage system in Gaza up and running to reduce the spread of disease. And, and what about the fighting that's going on? Where, where is that taking place right now? Well, in Gaza, fighting focused in part on the Jabalia refugee camp, the northern part of the Strip, uh, with the Israeli military saying it killed Hamas fighters and located weapons and military equipment there. And we got another reminder that this is not limited to Gaza. The Israeli military says dozens of mortar shells were fired into Israel from across the border with Lebanon early today. And the Israeli Air Force responded with strikes that the military says destroyed Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. The military also says it intercepted what it called an aerial target fired into northern Israel. That's NPR's Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aisha. The public's heard a lot about Donald Trump's legal challenges. But what will happen if he survives those and wins the election a year from now? His proposals haven't gotten that much attention. He's sat out the Republican debates. But to his base, he's been busy outlining his goals. And in many cases, he's promising to go further than he did in his first term. Jill Colvin is a national political reporter for the Associated Press. She's been following Trump's 2024 campaign and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with immigration, what many would consider to be a big weak spot for President Biden. This year alone, the U.S.-Mexico border has received a record number of migrants, 2.4 million, and that's causing problems even in Democratic strongholds like Chicago and New York. So what is Donald Trump saying that he'd do? Well, you know from covering him that immigration has always been one of the former president's key issues. And what he's proposing for a second term goes far beyond what he tried to accomplish the first with ideas that are far more extreme. Uh, He is proposing what he calls the largest ever deportation operation in American history. Uh, He says that he wants to reimpose that travel ban that targeted Muslim majority countries. He wants to expand that. Uh, He's proposing these ideological tests where he says that anybody coming into the country. Um, They will test to see whether they're communists, whether they are bigots and people who dislike the United States, um, that he will bar those people as well. And he's also proposed um, a radical reinterpretation of the 14th Amendment that would bar uh, the constitutional right of birthright citizenship to people who are born in the country. The economy is another spot where Biden has been seen as weak um, because of high inflation. What are Trump's priorities here? Well, Trump, um, as as I'm sure you'll not be surprised to hear, has been quite focused on on tariffs. He wants to implement a universal tariff on all imported goods. Um, He's talked about 10 percent as a potential benchmark. And the way that Trump talks about tariffs, he he presents it as though that it doesn't impact the price that the consumers pay when they're actually purchasing this items, which, of course, is not the way that that tariffs work. Mm. And tariffs are an area where a president has a lot of power, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, you know, that he was very aggressive on in his first term in office. Um, and, you know, he's somebody who has been very skeptical of, of trade deals, you know, somebody who pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and, and so it's an area, you know, where he learned during his first term um, that the president has a lot of, you know, ability to, to push through things without, you know, needing the, the help of Congress. 
As we mentioned earlier, Trump is caught in a web of criminal indictments and civil suits. It seems like he has a plan for dealing with even that. Here's a clip of what Trump said earlier this month. We will start by exposing every last crime committed by crooked Joe Biden, because now that he indicted me, we're allowed to look at him. And I will direct a completely overhauled DOJ to investigate every Marxist prosecutor in America. As president, he, he could make some of these changes, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, the most significant thing that we're going to be talking about today. The, the proposals that he has put forward um, replacing, you know, everybody there, his perceived enemies. And he's gone as far as to say that he intends to appoint a special prosecutor to go after Biden, to go after his family. He could even, and he intends even, to go after potential opponents. If somebody is doing well, he says, if somebody is potentially beating him, even though he couldn't run for another term, he wants to go after those people and indict them as well. And, and so he's really viewing the Justice Department as a tool that he can use um, to enact retribution um, and, and to punish the people that he feels have gone after him unfairly. Why would there be, or why has there been criticism of Trump's proposed approach to the Justice Department? Well, there's been a longstanding tradition in this country of the Justice Department being thought of as as independent from the White House, from the president. Um, you know, it, it's it's quite you know stunning to hear you know a political candidate talking about using that power to target their political enemies. But, you know, we saw during Trump's first term um, the extent to which he really thought of of the federal government as sort of his, you know, the, the lawyers um, who worked in the, the White House Counsel's Office and the Justice Department as sort of being his lawyers and there to serve him. And so this is really an extension of, of that kind of thinking. In addition to all of these like legal issues, there are a lot of issues that, you know, you could call culture wars that he has keyed in on a lot, like transgender rights. What has Trump said about these? You know, it's interesting. At, at Trump's rallies now, he gets the biggest applause line still when he talks about transgender issues and proposes things like banning men from participating in women's sports. You know, he says that he will push Congress to enact a bill establishing that there are only two genders recognized by the U.S. government. And it's not just transgender issues that he's been talking about. He's also um, been talking about crime, um, you know, sending the federal uh, you know, National Guard into cities like Chicago that he deems out of control, talking about a federal takeover of Washington, D.C. Um, because of crime and because when he drives through, he sees graffiti that he doesn't like. These proposals really, you know, run the gamut and, and are quite popular um, with his supporters. It seems like a, a lot of supporters of Trump and Trump himself are trying to learn from his term in office before. With that knowledge that they have now, how much more prepared do you think they are? Trump and his allies are extraordinarily more prepared um, if he wins a second term in office. You know, when they arrived at the White House in 2017, it was chaos. Um, they knew very little about the levers of federal power. Uh, they tried to push through the ex executive orders that were immediately mired in the courts had to go through one iteration after the next in order to get these things to stand up legally. And so they are far more prepared, not just because they had four years in office to sort of learn, you know, the levers of, of federal power, but because they've had these years since to, to work on these issues, to lay out plans. 
That's Jill Calvin, an Associated Press national political reporter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9.18. Coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about how a decision by Fisk University in 1871 helped shape American popular music. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Qatar's prime minister said today that he's confident that a deal will soon be reached to begin freeing hostages taken by Hamas during the October 7th attack. Qatar, the U.S. and Israel have been negotiating a release for weeks. Taylor Swift says she's putting safety first. Swift postponed last night's show in Rio de Janeiro because of extreme temperatures topping 100 degrees. She announced a decision on Instagram after a 23-year-old fell ill at Swift's show Friday night and later died. And a manhunt in Tennessee came to an end early this morning. Police in Memphis say the 52-year-old suspect, wanted in the fatal shootings of three women and a teenage girl, was found dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. For years, weight has been used as a measure of health in doctor's offices. Higher BMIs are correlated with heart disease, diabetes, and other conditions. But as more research has emerged about how hard it is to keep weight off without medications and how harmful weight stigma itself can be, some providers are moving away from focusing on the number on the scale. From member station KUOW in Seattle, Reporter Eileen Shoneal has the story. About five years ago, Sarah Barak badly tore a ligament in her thumb and needed surgery to get it reattached. But when she went in for the operation, she got some unsolicited advice. The surgeon said she should lose weight, suggesting her size and her injured thumb were connected. 
he was making the argument that like my posture was affecting my arm pain and that my posture was made worse by my size, all of which could be true, but I still had a disconnected thumb. And even if I lost 100 pounds, the thumb would not have been reattached on its own. Patients with larger bodies often report that when they go to the doctor, their problems are ignored or written off as an inevitable result of their weight. And they're given suggestions for diets and lifestyle changes they've already tried. Research has found that some people avoid or delay health care because of that. Barack says she's assertive about advocating for the care she needs, but it's draining. It's freaking exhausting. And frankly, not everyone can do it. Experts also say providers sometimes miss diagnosing major health problems because they're so laser-focused on a patient's weight. These harms are a reason that a growing number of providers are shifting to a new approach, often called weight-inclusive or weight-neutral care. Dr. Tess Moore is a family medicine physician in Seattle. These are our exam rooms. Moore's done her best to make her clinic feel comfortable for people of all sizes. Every exam room has an array of blood pressure cuffs for different sized arms, and the chairs and exam tables fit all patients. We always have our gowns of various sizes, spectrums of various sizes. And in June, the American Medical Association started recommending providers look beyond BMI when measuring a patient's health. The new policy says to consider factors like genetics, blood sugar levels, and where there's fat on a patient's body. But more and other weight-neutral providers go much further than that. We don't recommend weight loss as a way of treating medical conditions. Doctors who take a more traditional approach often tell their patients to exercise more and eat better in order to lose weight. What Moore tells her patients is that exercise and healthy food are good for them, regardless of whether or not they lose weight. She says that focus on the inherent benefits of exercise can help people start and stick with a routine. We recommend moving your body in a way that's sustainable, which hopefully is joyful. Eating food in a way that nourishes. Moore says if after those conversations about exercise and nutrition, a patient still really wants to lose weight, she cautions them they're likely to regain it in the long term. A meta-analysis of 29 long-term weight loss studies found that more than half of the weight participants lost was regained within two years, and more than 80% of the lost weight was regained within five years. But doctors with a more traditional approach to weight are pushing back against the weight-neutral providers. For some folks with a condition like diabetes, weight loss in combination with some lifestyle changes you know, could be an option that they would choose. Dr. Ellen Shore is an obesity medicine doctor and researcher at the University of Washington. She agrees with weight-neutral providers that exercise and healthy food on their own are good for health. But she says for some patients, weight loss can have additional benefits. Studies have shown that even a modest amount of weight loss in people whose BMI is classified as overweight or obese reduces their risk of diabetes, for example. Shore says when weight loss might help, doctors should say that. It comes down to how they have the conversation. When a physician is approaching it in a non-judgmental manner and not assuming that a person hasn't made changes, it can be discussed as a treatment option in a way that's supportive. Shore says increasingly, weight loss drugs like Wigovi are her primary tool for managing patients' weight. To be totally honest, what we've been asking them to do you know, with just lifestyle alone has been unrealistic. Critics of the newest weight loss drugs point to their limitations. They're expensive and in short supply, and their long-term effects are still unknown. 
and weight-neutral providers say, even in a world with these new drugs, people with larger bodies still need to feel heard and respected in the doctor's office and have their primary health concerns addressed. For NPR News, I'm Eilish O'Neill in Seattle. Comedian and podcaster Duncan Trussell has a theory about reincarnation. It sounds a lot like regular life. You're probably going to get scared, then you're going to get angry, then you're going to just do the exact same thing that has been getting you in all the samsaric loops you've been getting in here. Hear part two of Rachel Martin's interview with the host of the Duncan Trussell Family Hour later today on All Things Considered. Listen on your favorite public radio station via smart speaker, smartphone, or radio. The year was 1871 and Fisk University was struggling. Fisk was just a few years old then, one of the institutions founded in the South to educate Black people after the Civil War. The school's choir went on tour to raise money. It was a decision that changed the course of American popular music, according to Van Newkirk. His article in The Atlantic is called The Years of Jubilee, and it's part of a new issue centered around the unfinished legacy of the Reconstruction era. Van Newkirk is a senior editor at the magazine, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the idea behind this issue. Why did this feel like the right time to focus on Reconstruction? Well, I love history, and a lot of people at The Atlantic love history, but and we don't do this because we love history. We, we do journalism because we are looking at ways to understand what's happening in the present. And I think that there's so much to learn from this era right after the Civil War when so many things are put into place that we take for granted now. And I think that era, the imagination of that era, the bravery of people in that era, and the strong commitment from the federal government to the advancement of the people who were at the lowest rungs of society, I think those are things that actually are important for us as we sit and look at a country and a world where we have so many crises and problems that both stem from the unfinished business there and also are pretty difficult things to tackle. Well, let's talk about your article. It's about the Fisk University Jubilee Singers. Why did this group start and why did they go on tour? Fisk University was one of several HBCUs that was founded right after the Civil War by missionary groups. And as such, they, like many other schools, they had a choir. At first, this choir was pretty standard business. They were organized under uh, Director George O. White, and his goal was to show that this group of Black singers, many of whom had been born into slavery, could sing and be the equal of all of these white performers going around, which would help serve the larger project of showing that Black folks were equals to white folks. And he decided in 1871 when the school was in pretty bad shape financially, to take them on a tour to show what they could do and hopefully raise money to save the school. And they did, right? Like, they saved the school with their singing. Yes. So they set out to raise about $20,000, which is a lot of money in today's money, and they ended up raising around $100,000. A lot of that was because of the spiritual. These were songs that their parents, or even them, 
they had performed in the fields or in uh, religious uh, rituals as enslaved folks. And they consider those songs to be sacred and not for popular consumption. Although this choir practiced these songs, it wasn't something that they started out to say, this is the majority of our repertoire. This is what we do. But in the middle of that tour, they made the decision to start making the spiritual the center of their identity. You write about a very important performance in Oberlin, Ohio. Tell us about what happened there. So this performance in Oberlin is one of the turning points for them. They chose to make the spiritual the center of their performance. And they they performed this song, Steal Away. And that song completely just held that audience captive. And Van, we we have a recording of the modern Fisk Jubilee singers singing Still Away. just beautiful. And what was the reaction to that? Oh, people were crying. People were standing in applause, demanding that they uh, sing it again. There are newspaper clippings from that performance where they said there was not a dry eye in the house, where people were passing around baskets of money and they were overflowing with donations to these singers. So this is when they knew they had something. But tell us about what the singers experienced on the tour. You do have this great story in the beginning of of your article where there were white people about to attack them and they sing and they all stop. And that like the, the leader of the mob is like crying and just begging for another hymn. Yeah, that story was one of my favorites that I found in the archive. And the archive is full of these little stories that just seem like people slaying giants. And actually the school's own history refers to them sort of as Jason and the Argonauts, this level of just mythological, legendary endeavor. So you have to keep in mind, the Fisk University is in Nashville, Tennessee, and the Klan was founded right around the same time. And even outside of the South, you had a lot of white folks who even might have been liberal in their minds who had never encountered a black person who believed that what black culture was, was minstrelsy. So when they saw this co-ed group of college-educated folks traveling around in trains, they got some pretty awful reactions. So they were denied boarding. They were obviously called slurs. They had audiences come up and demand that they stopped singing the songs they were singing and sing minstrel songs instead. And they that happened so often that one of the members of the choir was trained to do a sort of half minstrel song to uh, appease audiences. Mm. 
We talked about Reconstruction as, as a period, as an era that, you know, it ended in 1877. I am obviously an HBCU graduate, Howard University. Can you talk to me about how the Fist Jubilee Singers are kind of a microcosm of how HBCUs have continued the legacy of Reconstruction way past 1877 into today? Well, I'm an HBCU grad myself, Morehouse. So that history of preserving and keeping alive the tradition of Reconstruction, I think it's actually the primary thing that gives the allure and the aura to HBCUs. Because this era, it is one where obviously you have the, for the first time, civil and legal rights for Black folks. But it was so much more than that. It was people going out and trying to build a world that honored this promise to Black Americans. The thing that makes them most powerful is they keep that imagination of what an America might look like if we actually honor these promises to Black folks. I think the reservoir for that is HBCU libraries. Van Newkirk is senior editor at The Atlantic. His new article in the December issue of the magazine is called The Years of Jubilee. Thank you so much for talking with us about it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, human rights activists say some 20,000 Russians have been arrested over their opposition to the war. Today, we're looking at one. Last week, a Russian court convicted a young woman who replaced supermarket stickers with slogans condemning the Kremlin's war. She was sentenced to seven years in prison. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. Sofia Sabotna says she never believed in love at first sight, at least not until she laid her eyes on Alexandra Skochalenko. One photograph, says Sabotna, when reached at their home in St. Petersburg, was all it took. Only later did she realize the depths of talent in the person she's now been with for the past six years. It turned out Skochalenko, or Sasha, she's known to her friends, was a skilled artist who'd published graphic novels and a dedicated musician and writer. She was also a devoted pacifist, horrified by Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. For Sasha, the war was especially painful because she has lots of friends in Kyiv and in Ukraine. And we were all shocked that something like this could happen, that Russian rockets could fall on Kyiv. With the government cracking down on street demonstrations, Skochalenko was among thousands of Russians who looked for safer ways to protest the invasion. She found it in a widespread underground campaign that replaced supermarket price tags with stickers containing anti-war slogans and news reports of civilian deaths in Ukraine from Russian bombs. Only Skochalenko got caught. An elderly pensioner had informed the police. That they caught Sasha was completely random. Lots of other people across Russia had also taken part in the same thing. And most weren't arrested. Or if they were, the worst that happened was they received a fine. 
Skochelenko was charged with knowingly spreading false information about Russia's army, a new criminal offense amid the war in Ukraine that carries a possible 10-year sentence. As the judge issued a ruling, shouts of shame ran out from supporters in the St. Petersburg courtroom. Boris Vishnevsky, a local opposition lawmaker who attended the verdict, says in persecuting Skochelenko and other anti-war activists, authorities have one simple objective. It's done to scare everyone else. And to do that, you don't have to imprison hundreds of thousands of people. You just have to cruelly and unjustly imprison one person who's not guilty of anything at all. In her final appeal to the court, Skochelenko again refused to repent her pacifist views. Despite poor health, she suffers from celiac disease and ill treatment she says she received in pretrial detention. Skochelenko also says the government inadvertently spread her pacifist views far wider than a few stickers ever could. Thanks to my investigators and prosecutors, the information I spread reached thousands in Russia and all over the world. Had I not been arrested, it would have been known only to one granny, a cashier, and the supermarket security guard. Meanwhile, Sobotna says despite the sentence, she and Skochelenko are still dreaming of better times down the road. Sasha's books and drawings, she says, are now being printed and exhibited in the West. When Skochelenko is free, they plan to leave Russia, she adds, and start a new life where their values are more welcome and Sasha's talents already in demand. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Healthcare advocates are criticizing a state report that was ordered by Governor Healy in response to the closing of Lemonster Hospital's maternity ward. The advocates say the report does not provide a clear strategy to stop the closure of additional facilities. In September, UMass Memorial Medical Center closed its birthing center in Lemonster, although the state had described the center as an essential service. The State Department of Public Health said it did not have the authority to prevent the shutdown. On Nantucket, preparations are underway for President Biden's annual Thanksgiving visit to the island. The Nantucket Current reports a large Air Force jet arrived last week to deliver vehicles and equipment for security. For more than 40 years, the president and his family have made a tradition of gathering on the island for a Thanksgiving vacation. Tonight, the Celtics are in Memphis against the Grizzlies. It's 43 degrees in Boston with sunshine and highs in the low 50s, a chance of some isolated showers this afternoon and this evening. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Skylar Higley was very excited about Amazon offering health care to its Prime members. Oh, I love the Amazon Basics kidneys. We're transplanting ourselves this week to Portland, Maine, and talking to the CEO of L.L. Bean, because of course we are. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. On election night in the 1950s, an ambitious, cynical State Department employee named Hawkins Fuller and an earnest political science nerd named Tim Laughlin meet at a bar in Washington, D.C. What do you want? What? To drink. A glass of milk. What? Milk. Milk? They couldn't be more different, yet they are instantly attracted to each other. But it's a dangerous time to be gay. McCarthyism is raging and the Lavender Scare is in full swing. Despite it all, that chance meeting is the beginning of a relationship that will span decades. Their story is at the center of the new miniseries, Fellow Travelers. The show stars Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey. The cast also includes Jelani Aladdin, Noah Ricketts, and Allison Williams. And just a warning to listeners, this conversation will talk about sex. Ron Nyswaner is the creator of Fellow Travelers. You might know him as the screenwriter of the Oscar-nominated film Philadelphia. And he joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Aisha. I'm really happy to be here. What drew you to this project? Why did you want to make it now? Well, 11 years ago or so, I read Thomas Mallon's book, Fellow Travelers, and have tried and waited to get it made for all those years. That the central relationship between Hawk and Tim, as you very well described it, to me is the essence of a great love story. People who sort of really are not meant for each other, and they're going to probably cause each other a lot of discomfort and pain, but they can't keep away from each other. Well, let's let's talk about that because Tim and Hawk, they meet at the height of the Lavender Scare when LGBTQ employees in the federal government were fired or forced to resign because of their identities. But both of them react in very different ways. Hawk chooses to keep his identity as a gay man hidden, and Tim wants to embrace their relationship. Tim, what do you want? I want to be with you. Okay, let's go inside. No. No, I want to be with you. Sleep in the same bed with you all night. Not get kicked out at midnight so the neighbors won't see me leaving in the morning. I want to eat a meal with you like other couples. We have never eaten in a restaurant. Men do eat in restaurants. <laughs> how, how do you balance that, that tension and, and really that pain, right? In dark times, my community, LGBTQ people, have found a way to have joy and pleasure. And in fellow travelers, a lot of pleasure comes from sex yeah. and from connection. And I think that in the certainly in the 50s and the 40s, gay people were hiding themselves before the Lavender Scare. It's yeah. not as if they went into the closet Mm-mm. when the State Department and the government started investigating and purging them. It was just that it was heightened because then it wasn't just sort of disappointing your family or maybe getting arrested. It was your, your career and your life would be ruined. 
you mentioned finding connection through sex and and let me tell you um this show um it's not for the children it's not for <laughs> not the literal yes. children um it's quite steamy you went there yeah we did we really did and mr mallon's book actually features sex in the same way that we uh we do which is that our rules about the sex scenes were that they always had to move the story forward. Mm. So we didn't say, hey, we're 20 minutes into an episode, let's show some beautiful bodies. <laughs> you know, that wasn't, it was never like that. And also, you know, Oscar Wilde said, everything in life is about sex except for sex. Sex is about power. Mm. And the, one of the rules that we had is that every sex scene is about power. It's mm. a power dynamic. It is 2023, but even now, I think TV has come a long way in, in their depictions of gay romance and LGBTQ romance. But was there any at all pushback on the idea of, like, we are going to show men having sex and doing what they do in the same way that we show heterosexual couples all the time? There was no pushback, I have to say, from the studio or network. As a matter of fact, there was encouragement. And the president of the studio, Fremantle Studio, said, let's make the sex between these guys so hot that straight men watching it will want to have gay sex. <laughs> now, now, I have to say, I haven't yet been approached by a straight man who says, hey, I'm one of those guys. But anyway, if there are any out there listening, uh, you know, I'm available. But for me, when I came out of the closet in... 1977, 78, you know, sexual connections to another human being was much more than pleasure, although it was pleasure. It was, I am finding myself. I am finding joy in connecting to uh, someone just like me. This thing that I have hidden, I'm opening it up so thoroughly that I can have this powerful, intimate connection with other men. Mm. I mentioned earlier Jelani Aladdin and Noah Ricketts. They play a black newspaper reporter yeah. and a drag queen who fall yeah. in love with each other. Yes. What, what did you think about depicting their relationship? Well, you know, I wanted there to be black characters in this story. And so they, they are invented for the show. But everything in, in the show is meticulously researched. So, you know, how do I sort of have a black character be part of Hawk and Tim's world? The black press was really very vital yeah. and active in the 50s. And so we found models for a character of Marcus, who was played by Jelani Aladdin. But, you know, I wanted all my characters to be flawed and have dilemmas. One of the other rules on Fellow Travelers was there are no noble victims mm -hmm. in Fellow Travelers. It's not just about the oppression from the government. It's about the oppression that we put on ourselves. And Marcus's ambition is in conflict with his gay self. And then when he falls in love with Frankie, who is a drag queen, mm -hmm. and we follow them for the same 33 years that we follow Hawk and Tim. And it was just joyful adventure. There are younger generations who maybe don't know about the Lavender Scare or don't realize the impact of the AIDS epidemic mm. and, yes. and what that did and what that was. Mm. Did you think about those younger generations who would be looking at this and don't know this? Well, of course. I mean, every writer in my writer's room was younger than I was, mm. some by at least a generation. And all of the actors who play LGBTQ characters are LGBTQ people. So I actually, there was there was education from my, my lived experience to impart to these younger people. When we're in dark times, and it feels like a dark time right now, we often feel despair. And 
we hear people say like nothing's improved we're just right to where we always were it's just, this is worse than ever well it's not in terms of lgbtq history it's not darker than it's ever been and there have been dark times before and not only did we survive but we like in the aids crisis we changed medicine we changed the world through that crisis but in all these dark times lgbtq people have found a way to have joy to have pleasure to dance to sing to make art and to make love and that's what i really want people to remember don't sink into despair struggle with joy that's ron nicewaner he is the creator of fellow travelers the series is available now on showtime thank you for joining me really my pleasure when you write for a living, writer's block can be a nightmare. I just couldn't write a song to save my life, and that's kind of not a good place to be in. Musician Tim DeLauder is the frontman of the Polyphonic Spree, a choral symphonic rock band. Their sound has drawn comparisons to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and they've been featured in movie soundtracks such as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and The Big Short. But writing a new album wasn't easy this time. I have a guitar that's kind of by my bed, and I wake up and I look at it like, do I want to play today? Or just, oh, I'm not going to play today. So then I like go over and just, I'll strum a chord, you know, at some other time. And if that chord promotes to go to another chord, and then I kind of start singing, making stuff up, then then it's like I'm in it. It's almost like finding the muse. It's either there or it isn't there. Love plays somehow the game changed into amusing. During the pandemic, Tim DeLauder used his time to experiment with a recording software called Logic. Oddly enough, Polyphonic Spree's new album came about because of that software. The album's called Salvage Enterprise. In the process of learning this, you know, I had to play something to record to, you know, figure this whole thing out. And while I was doing it, it just started to happen. I started to write a song. It's like this is the first time in, in like years that something was really coming out that was tangible and actually writing. Give me everything I need to survive. Well, I mean, Polyphonic Spree, um, it, it's sometimes called like a choral rock group. And I, I don't think most people think of like choral and rock together. So how did they end up in the same band? Well, it, it kind of started from the beginning because I come from a rock, a rock background. And then I wanted the elements of kind of rock instruments mixed with symphonic. We have these kind of epic journey songs that, that take people on for a ride, and some of them can be four minutes, some can be nine minutes, and all the instrumentation in the band really helps tell the stories musically. So you funded this album through Kickstarter. Like, why did you go that route, and, and what was the experience like? The landscape has changed. I've been doing this for a long time. I had a band called Tripping Daisy back in the day, and we were on different major labels. And the Spree's been on quite a few different labels itself going through through the years. We've been a band for 23 years. And, you know, you find new ways of going about it. And when Kickstarter first came out, it was like, we have a really amazing fan base that's been with us from the very beginning. They're so dialed in, they're with us. It became, man, this could be a possibility 
the fans could actually, you know, fund this and it keeps the, the fans and the band kind of on their own terms. And so it worked out like amazingly well the first time. And then we did it again. We used a different format this time, but um, we did it on our own again and it, it worked as well the second time. And it's like, we do these um, prizes or, you know, different, I'm going fishing with somebody for one of the prizes that you get. Um, it just seems to work with our fan base. They're open to it and um, it works for us all the way around. So talk to me about your song, Wishful, Brave and True. Gotta believe your will is strong weaker when you're building a wall. Gotta believe in standing tall what are you critiquing here yeah it's uh the whole record is about overcoming and it's the process of doing that humans want to be happy we we want to have what we need to to get there and we ultimately can it can see seem like such a daunting task to to make it through those situations that are keeping us down and if we just listen to ourselves, we can find it. Finding the muse is actually what brought me out of it, which was myself bringing myself out of it. And it's documented on the record, which is kind of crazy. It saved me in a sense, so, which is ultimately myself. Gotta believe your will is strong. It seems like many of the songs on Salvage Enterprise are about loving nature. In the morning sun, the trees are singing, humming their sound, talking to clouds. Well, I love nature. Um, I, I actually find a lot of um, of my spiritual alignment in it. Um, you know, I, I often say this about you know the grass that grows in the street where cars are just driving over it daily, but seems like in the middle of this concrete, this blade of grass is growing and flourishing and, and, and is alive in the worst circumstances. Or, you know, you're driving by a park and there's a tree that um, basically absorbed the chain link fence that it was, that it was uh, planted by. And it doesn't even notice these things. It just continues to live and, and be vibrant and do what it has to do. I identify with that. Things, the struggles that we go through as human beings, they're, they're things that you just kind of absorb and keep moving forward and keep growing. And um, those little reminders are all over the place outside. It did did nature kind of inspire like a, a more pared down approach on this album? Because this album is a bit more acoustic than your other records, right? Yeah, it's, that's right. There's a, an, an actual theme that you'll kind of notice from the start of an alone acoustic guitar that basically will thread throughout the whole album. You have a lot of peaks and valleys. It's a very dynamic record. It's the most dynamic record I think we've made um, where you have the quietness of maybe just a single vocal and an acoustic guitar mixed with you know a full-blown orchestra and choir. 
Um, it kind of goes through a lot of different landscapes, but it all tells the story. It's the ebb, ebb and flow of life, basically, of what I was going through, and it visit all sorts of different places. The breakthrough often follows the storm's open face. Let the storm have its grace in the sea. Tim DeLauder is the front man of the choral symphonic rock band, The Polyphonic Spree. Their latest album, Salvage Enterprise, is out now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. In the morning, so we fall on down. The mass is finding how to release. When you're open. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. There is nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live wherever you are. Get the free WBUR app today. Radio Lab comes to City Space next month for an immersive multimedia event exploring the history of cassette tapes and how they changed the world. That's Friday, December 8th. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 43 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the low 50s. A chance of some showers this afternoon and evening. Black Mona when actor and singer Billy Porter released his first album in 1997, he had a lot to say and hide. Everybody told me that my queerness would be my liability, and it was for decades. And now it's actually my superpower. Billy Porter uninhibited in his new album, Black Mona Lisa, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.